This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, one of my favorite quadrennial events, the Winter Olympics, opened last night in Sochi, Russia, courtesy of Dr. Jacques Rogue, Vladimir Putin, and untold billions spent dressing up the Caucasus for 17 days on the ice and snow. We're hearing that the hotels aren't ready, the gays aren't wanted, and the corruption is rife. But all that should be forgotten as our complaints refocus on NBC watering down major events to tape three tape-delayed runs in the medal standings. I'm hoping to be proven wrong with this Winter Olympics. So this is my first show back in the chair since returning from the World Economic Forum in Davos, and I made a new friend up in the Alps, Jacob Weisberg, the chairman of Slate, author of Bushisms and the Bush Tragedy, and, as I found out last Saturday, a Toastmaster extraordinaire. His send-up of our mutual friend Jake Seward, suggesting the man made a Faustian bargain and sold his soul was a classic for the ages. We'll talk to Jacob in a moment. Then, now out of office and turning his talents to the pen, it's Howard Wolfson, former deputy mayor of New York City under Mike Bloomberg, and of course, the spokesman for Hillary Clinton on her last presidential run. Howard can be found today penning a column for the Daily Beast, among other things, not about politics, as one might expect, but music, his lifelong passion, as I've long known. But as Howard reminded us this week, the two are easily linked in political protest songs. Having just bid farewell to the legendary Pete Seeger, we'll catch up with Howard about how music and politics go hand in hand. But first, here in Manhattan, I'm joined by the great chairman of Slate, Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for joining us on Polyoptics, Jacob. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me on. Um, Jacob, you tweeted out earlier this week that uh, you thought that the message was getting through loud and clear that hotels in Sochi were disgusting, and yet uh, it was just the beginning of this meme about Sochi problems. Should we be focusing as much on the logistics and the politics and the, the what's going on in Russia as opposed to what the athletes are doing on the ice and snow? Well, yes, I don't see why not. You know, Josh, I was in Sochi 25 years ago with this huge group of Americans that got invited on this trip at the end of the Soviet Union. It's a hellhole. It's bringing it all back for me, reading about the toilets there. You know, there's this Black Sea beach with kind of gnarled pieces of concrete every year. And I just remember these Russians drinking beer out of these 64-ounce popcorn buckets passing out on the concrete bunker beach and waking up a color of red that you had never seen before and you know it was just it was just like a vile place and i don't know what the olympic committee was thinking and that in the, that this would be a good place to have the olympics but you know it does you you can't ignore the politics of it you can't ignore the authoritarianism of of putin or the, or the discrimination issues. And, you know, I think it's all appropriate. That said, I'm really looking forward to some of the events. Chairman of Slate, along with David Plotz, the editor, how are you as a news organization deploying your resources to cover it? You know, we're very uh, commentary focused or analytical. We have a, we have a feature we call uh, Five Ring Circus, which is basically kind of the smart take on, on the Olympics. We don't cover the news. Obviously, you can't really do that because of the ownership that NBC and the other big news organizations have. You can't cover it in a sort of up-to-the-minute way. But we try to be the first smart thing to say about what's happening. Um, 
interesting news this week. You and I uh, got together last weekend. It was President Obama's State of the Union address. And while the big legislative accomplishments may be in the rearview mirror, what you see over the past week or so is the president on the road. And I want to hear a clip from his visit to the Buck Lodge Middle School in Adelphi, Maryland, talking about uh, some of the small bore issues that he can accomplish through executive order. Let's hear a little bit of a clip from President Obama. And then, Jacob, you covered President Clinton, President Bush. How does these last few years of this administration compare to their predecessors? Only around 30 percent of our students have true high-speed Internet in the classroom. In countries like South Korea, that's 100 percent. Now, we shouldn't give that kind of competitive ad, uh, advantage over to other countries. We want to make sure our young people have the same advantages that some child in South Korea has right now. In a country where we expect free Wi-Fi with our coffee, we should definitely demand it in our schools. <laughs> Jacob Weisberg, this does not sound like a massive immigration reform bill or uh, a gun control legislation. Who doesn't like free Wi-Fi? Free Wi-Fi brought to you by President Obama. It's a, it's a great move. You know, Josh, it's funny. You, you remember this moment that President Clinton had after losing both houses of Congress in 1994 when he suddenly faced the prospect that he wasn't going to be able to get anything through Congress. And the question is, what could he do himself with the stroke of a pen? And, you know, that's what people in the White House are asking now. I mean, Clinton was widely ridiculed at that point for these micro-initiatives. Trigger locks, you know, ordered, school uniforms. Trigger locks, the V-chip. Do you remember the, the, v, I love so the v, v chip? I love the V-chip. in every in every TV. We no used human it so being much, has ever figured we? out how, <laughs> how to use a V-chip. Um, but uh, you know, but 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 I think Clinton's um, Clinton's intuition was right that you know from from some very small things, bigger things come, and also the perception of activity and action was very important. I mean, what you can't do is say I'm stuck. Change the Congress because that just leads to people uh, getting annoyed with you as well as with with the Congress. So, you know, I think this is not a hopeless moment, but the but the president, uh, for very good reasons, has has limited constitutional powers to act without congressional approval. Big article this week, I think, in Politico, Jacob Weisberg, about the influence of John Podesta coming in for this uh, year of work and whether that expert is sort of like a a specialist relief pitcher. He knows how to do the executive order thing in the last years of an administration. Are you hearing that from your friends in Washington? Well, that'll be interesting. You know, um, Obama's management style is to have this very, very tight-knit group of just a few people. He, he sort of filters things through, right? And what's happened with people he's brought in in the past, including Bill Daley, who he brought in as chief of staff, was, I think, they just didn't penetrate that circle. They didn't have the access to him, and hence they didn't have the ability to reshape things. And now Podesta, John Podesta, has been close to him for a long time. It'll be interesting to see if he changes the dynamic, but that's what I'll be watching. You know, going back to earlier in your career when you were writing for The Post, you were obviously, for some reason, drawn toward this new model of journalism that uh, was then defined by uh, one real standalone business, which was Slate, uh, financed by Microsoft. What drew you originally to Slate, and what were the things that you were able to do working for Slate that you weren't able to do for the paper? 
You know, it's funny, the, the Washington Post is, is one place I never worked, although I might have written occasional pieces for them over the years. I had worked at the New Republic in right. Washington when Michael Kinsley was editor, and he was really my, my mentor in journalism. He was the person who got me started on my career and who I most kind of tried to model myself after, although I don't have a fraction of his talent. Um, but, you know, we this idea started kicking around in the early days of the Internet that, hey, how would it change journalism and what did it let you do as journalists? And when Mike started Slate at Microsoft, I really wanted to be a part of it just because of this opportunity to invent a new medium. And the thing we quickly found, I mean, when we started Slate online had page numbers. You know, we thought people would read it once a week the way they read The New Republic or The Economist. Um, but we quickly discovered all this opportunity in terms of how you tell the, told the story, the kind of voice and tone that was more natural to the Internet, which came much more out of email, and just the, the speed and spontaneity and immediacy of the medium. Um, and all those things, you know, made you not really interested in going back even in the early days before there were really any proven business models and before the editorial model had developed very much. So big news this week, Jacob, that uh, after a six-month search or process to uh, move on from Steve Ballmer, uh, the former CEO of Microsoft or the outgoing CEO of Microsoft, now comes news this week that Satya Nadella will be uh, the next CEO of Microsoft. I want to hear a little bit of this exuberant video by uh, Bill Gates and get your reaction to how you've seen this company evolve over the last 15 years. I'm very excited about the choice of Satya Nadella to be the CEO of Microsoft. Microsoft has a long history of innovation, going back to the beginning where the vision of the personal computer was something that Microsoft helped bring to life. Our vision of a platform that software developers could thrive by building on really initiated the entire software industry. We brought forward graphics interface. Uh, we took advantage of the internet. Uh, so as the industry changes, we have to innovate and move forward. Uh, Jacob Weisberg, Microsoft has in Mark Penn as head of strategy and advertising the same advisor that helped President Clinton figure out these small bore things that made the appearance of progress so vivid. Uh, it, from your perspective and, and the fact of the, that you'd been so closely involved with, with Kinsley and Microsoft over the years, how did you take this news this week? It's interesting. I mean, we were I worked for Microsoft for eight years, a period you might describe as kind of the beginning of the decline. Um, the Microsoft was really kind of still the tail end of being this sort of exciting, heroic place when I first went there. And you would, you know, brag to people that you worked at, at Microsoft if you were a lowly journalist like me. But within a pretty short time, that had changed. And you would say kind of, I work at Slate and, you know, yeah, it's at Microsoft because it wasn't the cool place in the technology world anymore. And that's just, I think there's a certain inevitability about it. You know, in the days we were at Microsoft, everyone there was very intent on the company not becoming a IBM, by which it meant a much more bureaucratic, hierarchical, boring, not innovative uh, place that, you know, had its glory days behind it. And then, you know, of course, that happened in relation to Google. And it's happening at Google in relation to Facebook. And, you know, technology is driven by these big... Um, game-changing waves of disruption, and Microsoft is subject to that. Now, you still have some very solid businesses and some very good products that have a lot of life left in them, um, but the question is, can you, with a company that size, can you innovate? Can you introduce new things? Can you be, you know, a leader and not not a trailer in, in what's going on? And I just think that's an, just an incredibly difficult problem. 
you know, you and I have been talking over the past few weeks. I've, I've expressed my great admiration for the uh, wide range of podcasts that you have, and I've told you that I've been a longtime fan of the Slate Political Gab Fest. I want to hear just a cut of that from maybe this week or the prior week, because your um, your, your team is talking about one of these great entrepreneurial developments, uh, or not, of Ezra Klein sort of making a, a gambit to the uh, Washington Post, whether he's going to stay at Wonk Blog or ultimately defect and start a, a new venture with, through Vox. And then later on last week, the, the news that several other of the Wonk Blog folks would be joining Ezra at this new venture. Hear a little bit from your own folks on the GabFest and get your own perspective. I do mean everyone seems to have a new kind of news operation that they're starting. Nate Silver of 538, the blog 538 at the New York Times, is now partnering with ESPN on a new data journalism site. Ezra Klein of Washington Post Wonk blog and Slate's Matt Iglesias are getting funded by Vox Media to start a new public policy journalism site. Glenn Greenwald of Snowden fame is taking $250 million of Pierre Omidyar's money to start an investigatory news operation called First Look. Kara Swisher and Walt Mossberg, who created All Things D as part of the Wall Street Journal, have now started something called Recode uh, with NBC. The New York Times is investing heavily in a new data journalism operation. At the same time, we've seen gigantic growth at places like BuzzFeed and Business Insider and, and Upworthy, which isn't doing journalism, but they certainly are doing something. So, Emily, what is going on? Why is there so much ferment right now? Jacob Weisberg, I'll put the question to Emily to you and wonder whether this is a tough time for journalists to make a buck or the beginning of the golden age. I'm definitely on the golden age side. Um, you know, it, it's funny, um, and thanks for the plug for the Gab Fest, which is one of my favorite shows we do do at Slate. Um, there was a big bias against editorial content in the in the venture capital world and the technology world. You know, Union Square Ventures, which is probably the best known New York venture firm has a policy that they just don't want to invest in sites that have to hire editors or journalists. I think they didn't invest in BuzzFeed, actually, for that reason. And that's really seems to be changing really rapidly now. There is there is money available for new editorial-driven ventures. You know, and I just saw Mark Andreessen, who I follow on Twitter, um, saying that he thinks the news business is going to grow 10 to 100x, 10 to 100 times in the next 20 years, and that money is going, you know, he's he's the most influential venture capitalist, period. Um, So I think this attitude is changing, and, you know, I take it as vindication. I mean, it's been a long time in coming, but, you know, we started Slate in 1996, partly on this premise that when you remove these fixed costs and the weight of them from journalism, not having to print it, not having to mail it, not having to maintain all these facilities, you know, the money went into the content. And we didn't have a really a business model then. We thought advertising would pay a part. We thought readers would pay a part the way they do in, in legacy media in, in, in paying for the cost. But, you know, that insight was right. Um, it's just taken a pretty long time for business models to start to emerge that are viable. They're now emerging all over the place. There's not one model. There are a lot of different models. But it's an incredibly exciting time. Now, there was a um, uh, there was a funny thing on the side of the Columbia New Journalism Review where some J school students made a list of all the cliches that uh, that old timers come and, and utter when they come to speak. And one of them, which I'm totally guilty of, is that there's never been a better time to be a journalist. So I'm not allowed to say there's never been a better time to be a journalist because it's now officially a cliche. But like a lot of cliches, I think it's true. Jacob, we were talking uh, a couple weeks ago about our 
the places that we have in upstate New York, and you have this vision of sitting by a fireplace and uh, uh, nodding off as you've got a, a mag- the New York Times or the New Yorker in front of you, and or looking at a beautifully written paragraph and savoring how it was put together and rereading it. So if this is a great time for the written word, what's the best way to appreciate a beautifully written story in Slate? Well... Any way you want to appreciate it. I mean, personally, I'm, I've, I've been a huge reader my whole life, but I'm an omnivorous reader. I read happily in print. I read happily in digital form on a tablet or, or computer. And actually, I'm a huge consumer of books on tape and podcasts, and I love being read to. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the, the, I don't think the future is one thing or another. It's sort of, it's sort of ambidextrous. And what, how you, how you, read or how you listen sort of depends partly on convenience and comfort. Yeah, if you're curling up by a fire, you probably would like to have a printed book. Other things being equal, it's it's probably better, but maybe not better than having your uh, your Kindle or iPad and a, and a book in that form where you can look up words and you can search it and you can see what passages other people have highlighted. So this is a renaissance of reading, too. Uh, if people want to get a renaissance of reading, uh, they might go back into the middle part of the last decade and read some of Jacob's own work, and we're not going to talk about that uh, now. Very, two very different approaches to writing about uh, the 43rd president of the United States, George W. Bush. I want to begin with a, a series of some of his statements from the stump that eventually uh, found their way into a book by Jacob Weisberg called Bushisms. Our enemies are innovative and resourceful, and so are we. They never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people, and neither do we. It was not always a given that the United States and America would have a close relationship. These are big achievements for this country, and the people of Bulgaria ought to be proud of of the achievements that they have achieved. Uh, A fine host for the OPEC summit. I appreciate APEC summit. God bless America. The fact that they purchased the machine meant somebody had to make the machine. And when somebody makes a machine, it means there's jobs at the machine-making place. I remember meeting a mother of a (laughs) a child who was abducted by the North Koreans right here in the Oval Office. These immigrants have helped transform 13 small colonies into a great and growing nation of more than 300 people. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Your Holiness. Awesome speech. Jacob Weisberg, how did you decide for all of the uh, work that you've done uh, with serious uh, journalism and studying what what drives politicians to do what they do, that a very interesting thing would be to hone in on on the way George W. Bush delivers uh, uh, his scripts? Uh, Josh, I never hear those and don't laugh. And in fact, the new ways to harm our country was the subtitle I used for one of the collections. One of my favorites. You know, I actually had started with Bush 41 collecting what I believe is my coinage of Bushisms when I was at the New Republic. I used to run them as Bushism of the Week, which they're very different from his son's Bushisms. They were these long kind of convoluted locutions that he would kind of get lost in the structure of a sentence, but they weren't like little grammatical errors. Um, And then when I was covering the 2000 campaign, uh, for Slate, starting in 1999, the first time I went on a trip with Bush early in the primaries, uh, I remember him getting off a plane and this stuff coming out of his mouth. I'd never met him before. And I said, this is amazing, and started talking to the other reporters who were covering him. They all had notebooks full of these things. And uh, 
so I started putting them up every day on Slate. You know, that was another thing you could do online, right? I, I wouldn't write a full piece every day, but you could always have a Bushism of the day. And uh, people liked them, and people started sending in ones I missed, and we could link to the video and the audio. And uh, it was a great, uh, it was a great early days of the internet phenomenon. And uh, so there seemed no reason not to collect them in books. I think we ultimately did. We did one almost every year he was president, so it ended up being uh, half a dozen books. They were most hilariously translated into other languages. <laughs> Bush, Bushisms already sounded like he was translating something from another language, and I never kind of understood how you would do them in kind of German or Italian, but they did. So in a nutshell, I mean, you, you draw, at least in, in some of your public speaking about uh, President Bush through the Bush tragedy, you, you make a big sort of psychological breakdown of his relationship with his father and whether he was and his brother and whether he could sort of emerge as a result of a big bang rather than doing the hard work of George H.W. Bush in the oil business or his brother in the real estate business. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a man who, you know, grew up kind of as a as a failure, struggled in life, struggled in business, struggled with alcohol. Um, you know, his family kind of thought of him as, as the black sheep. And, you know, he had a big need and drive for vindication. Um, you know, and I think there was this view, probably a natural view of, of political dynasties, that the family's all on one team. They're all trying to do the same thing. And if he was trying to be elected, uh, if he wanted to run, it was to kind of uh, fulfill his father's, you know, it was because his father had lost this election and he had to vindicate the family. I thought that there was much more a sense of challenge to and hostility, uh, not really openly expressed, but towards his father. And so much of his politics seemed to be explained by repudiating what his father had done. And, you know, Bush 43, in, in his first campaign especially, really used Reagan against his father. And and his message was very much, I'm a Reagan conservative, I'm a real conservative, not like my father, you know, the wishy-washy conservative, the failed conservative, the guy who didn't finish the Iraq war, the guy who didn't stand up strongly enough against the Soviets, you know, and that was, you could explain, I thought, I mean, you could go through a whole range of issues from social issues to foreign policy. And it was very hard to explain Bush 43's views otherwise because he didn't have a lot of views before he ran for president, well, certainly before he ran for governor of Texas on, on national issues. But you could explain almost all of them by kind of drawing a line in the opposite direction from where his dad went. I want to hear a little bit of President Bush maybe toward the very end of his term as he was reflecting on some of the mistakes that he made. It clearly putting a mission accomplished on an aircraft carrier was a mistake. It sent the wrong message. We were trying to say something differently, but nevertheless, it conveyed a different message. Obviously, some of my rhetoric has been a mistake. Um, I thought long and hard about Katrina. You know, could I have done something differently, like land Air Force One, either New Orleans or Baton Rouge? The problem with that and uh, is that... Um, Law enforcement would have been pulled away from the mission. And then your questions, I suspect, would have been, how could you possibly have flown Air Force One into Baton Rouge and police officers that were needed uh, to expedite traffic out of New Orleans were taken off the task? 
Jacob Weisberg, chairman of Slate, author of The Bush Tragedy, among so much other written work that is part of the historical record. Uh, you, you, you came out with your book in 2008, and in recent years there's been maybe a thawing on people's views on President Bush, on his relationship with Vice President Cheney, certainly through Peter Baker's book, R.J. Cutler's documentary. Uh, you, were, you were fairly determined in your view of the way uh, President Bush 43 would be seen in history. Has that changed at all for you as you've read more, learned more? Well, I can't speak on behalf of history. I think there's a strong case that, that Bush 43 was a, a, a very ineffective president, basically a, a failed president, uh, and that the most important decisions he made in office were, were very poor decisions. Uh, I don't. Nothing's happened since that, that's caused me to revise any of those judgments. And interestingly, you know, you sort of look to an ex-president to see what they're what they're going to do. I mean. Bill Clinton's the model of staying intensely active and involved in issues, you know, without intervening directly in politics. Um, Bush is sort of the opposite. I mean, he's the day he left office, it was like he was he was done with politics. He's not he's not been really thoughtful about his time in office. I mean, he wrote the obligatory memoir, but it's a pretty it's a pretty superficial book, and you don't get any sense that he's out there struggling with these issues. You know, he is interestingly doing these paintings. Um, which are some kind of effort to come to grips with what happened when he was in office, and they have this weird introspective quality. You were asked in one of the interviews for uh, Bush tragedy if you could describe Bush in one word, and I think you you used two, and you said buried anger. What did you mean by that? Well, I feel that yeah, that was a Reddit AMA I did last week, and somebody somebody actually they said three words, and I said I can do it in two. Um, you know, I think it's um, some people think the root of this is how how Bush uh, dealt with his alcoholism, that he didn't get any kind of treatment, didn't go to AA, um, and that he has this characteristics of what's sometimes termed a dry drunk. That you're not drinking, um, but you have a lot of the a, a lot of the issues that uh, you dealt with through drinking or that uh, came out of drinking are are the same. Well, Jacob Weisberg, uh, later on this month, February 26th, we all get a chance to get transported back again to the Reagan years, happier years for us all, I think, uh, courtesy of FX's The Americans, uh, run by none other than Joe Weisberg, your brother. want to hear a little bit of a clip from the trailer of The Americans and talk about uh, maybe your own uh, fraternal uh, issues with, with Joe. Stop. Counterintelligence is the place you want to be right now. We're up against the most sophisticated enemy in the world. You're my wife. Is that right? Super secret spies living next door. They look like us. They speak better English than we do. They're not allowed to say a single word in Russian once they get here. And you make any noise, I will kill you. Hi. Hi. President Reagan is outraged that the KGB thinks he can kidnap someone with impunity on American soil. Our war is not so cold anymore, Elizabeth. It's probably a coincidence. Or they're onto us. And this is what? We take those risks every day, Philip. That's what we do. Jacob Weisberg, you were uh, at Yale with your brother Joe. You were offered a bid to the Skull and Bones. You declined it. Joe went into the CIA and then came out, and now <laughs> is this uh, much celebrated uh, writer, writer and showrunner for this great show on FX. What's it like between the, the the sort of writing side of the family and the TV production side of the family? 
Um, well, you know, it's funny the way the uh, uh, George and Jeb went to Florida and Texas. My brother and I divided the landscape as fiction and nonfiction. And he's always been a fiction writer and a novelist, and I've always been a journalist and a nonfiction writer. Um, we are uh, we are very close, and um, boy, I'm so I could not be more biased. But boy, do I love this show. And part of what's so interesting about it for me is this reimagining this period, which was the first period when I was sort of politically conscious and active. How did Joe have to transform himself from being a real spy to a writer about spies? Uh, well, Joe, after Joe was in the for, uh, CIA for uh, about four years, I think pretty soon after college. He left when, when our um, father was dying. My father was very ill. He moved back to Chicago to take care of him. And then after my father passed away, I think he found he didn't want to go back to the CIA. He wanted to do what he'd always done on the side and for an avocation, which is to write fiction and write novels. Um, and it was a long time before he used any of that CIA experience in his work, but his second published novel was called An Ordinary Spy, and it was very much a, a kind of book about, novel about the reality of spying. And Joe, because um, he signed a contract when he's in the CIA, has to pass anything he writes on the subject. Um, through the publications review board, and he's very scrupulous about that. He shows them the scripts he writes for the Americans. You know, he makes sure he's not um, he's not violating uh, any anything that has a uh, security classification. So, on the nonfiction side of the Weisberg family, you look for your uh, Jacob Weisberg's byline recently in Slate. There's not a lot recently. Are we going to see more? Are you ready to get back to the pen? Ah, well, it's it's sad what you say. You know, I've I've kind of shifted much more to the business side. I mean, Slate has uh, 85 people working or more working for us now, and I I oversee the the business. The editorial side runs by itself, and uh, I found it a little hard to defend writing as the most urgent use of my my time here. But I I miss doing it regularly. I write sort of irregularly. And uh, one of the things I'm hoping to do is get back to writing more frequently about politics and other subjects. Jacob Weisberg, chairman of Slate, from the brutalist architecture of Sochi, Russia, 20 years ago to the recreation of the Russian embassy in northwest Washington, D.C., courtesy of The Americans, second season debuting on February 26th on FX. Watch Jacob's brother Joe in action. Uh, the great scripts running through the course of that series. Jacob Weisberg, thanks so much for joining us on Polyoptics. Josh, thanks so much. It's fun being on your show. Take care. And after the break, we're on to Howard Wolfson, former deputy mayor of New York City and now columnist for The Daily Beast, talking about music, politics, and protest songs. This is the only channel that takes you inside Washington, D.C. My message is simple. It's just not realistic. We're serious about growing our economy. Our economy. It's clear the president's is policy. Again. Not helping the economy. The economy. Bureaucracy. Monetary policy. Jobs. We'll be able to reduce our deficit. Fighting over power. It's starting to make a lot more sense. This is POTUS. Back now with my old friend Howard Wolfson for, I think, the third appearance on Polyoptics, but a Howard Wolfson, I think, that is probably much more relaxed and de-stressed than the previous couple times you've been on the show, Howard. It's just good to be in the studio with you. I find that relaxing. It is relaxing. It's warm in here, comfortable. You in just... the beautiful Time Warner building. Exactly, with a great jazz at Lincoln Center right outside our door. Exactly right. How are you doing? Are you decompressing okay? I'm trying. Uh, you know, I, I had a great run, uh, worked for a great mayor, um, and now on to new things. New things uh, is the Daily Beast column, which we're going to get into in great detail in a minute. But what else are you up to? Well, I'm going to continue to help the mayor with uh, his politics and communications. So 
Uh, I'm going to be working for him in a in a different uh, in a different location, but doing some similar things. This is Bloomberg Associates and the and that business or something else or. Uh, it's it's really it'll be the super PAC. It'll be communications kind of writ large, um, helping him as he kind of plots the next uh, course of his life. So you may not be able to completely uh, speak at at will about his successor, but I want to hear a little bit of Mayor de Blasio on Jon Stewart this week and get your sense of how this new mayor is settling into the job. The one uh, uh, stop and frisk, there was a challenge. It was ruled unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. New York City had proffered a challenge to that. You have ended that. I have. There will be no uh, stop and frisk. We've come to a settlement. What What is the settlement? Look. What I've said was you cannot, it's a simple idea, and our new police commissioner, Bill Bratton, who's fantastic, says this, you can't break the law to enforce the law. It's as simple as that. All right, fair enough. And what we had, what we had for years was young men of color, overwhelmingly, they were the ones singled out, treated as suspects, even if they hadn't done anything wrong, stop and frisk in its heyday we had almost 700,000 stops in a single year almost 90 percent of them were innocent people in every way shape or form no summons no charge nothing howard wolfson former deputy mayor of new york city that visit on to john stewart's program this week was uh, begun with not that talk about stop and frisk but the mayor almost correcting himself about actually eating pizza with his hands rather than a fork uh now from your perch outside of city hall how do you think this mayor is settling in well, you know, Mayor Bloomberg made it pretty clear to us, um, certainly uh, after the election and since, that he didn't want any criticism of his successor. He hasn't engaged in it, doesn't want any of us to do it. And so I, I, I respect that and I take it seriously. I've, I've avoided it. Um, you know, there's a pretty long uh, record of the things we agree and don't agree with uh, the new mayor on um, during the time he was public advocate and during the time he was a candidate. Um, there are some things that he's doing that um, carrying forward uh, our policies that obviously we think are good and um, there's some things that he's doing completely reversing our policies and obviously we thought our policies were right or we wouldn't be doing them. One very obvious question, uh, symbol about whether a mayor is doing well or not is uh, when you have a particularly biz- uh, heavy snowfall winter, there's a lot of stuff that falls onto the ground and stays there. I'm just a guy living in the village. There's a lot of <laughs> snow in the streets. Any thoughts about how this administration or, or what any administration needs to do from day one after transition? You don't know what happens when a major storm hits. How do you? How, how does any new administration deal with how do I get the plows out? Well, w- one of the reasons that uh, the mayor didn't want any, uh, the old mayor, Mayor Bloomberg, didn't want any criticism of the new mayor was he wanted to really run a world-class transition. And he didn't think that criticizing his successor was uh, going to uh, was going to be consistent with that. And, you know, we took it very seriously. Um, this is a, a city of 8 million people. People expect a certain level of service. Uh, there are life and death decisions that you as mayor uh, can get called upon to make, and you may have to make them on day one uh, of your new administration. And uh, during the period of transition, Mayor Bloomberg would say to us, you know, he may have a snowfall that he has to deal with in the first week. Uh, and so we need to do what we can to help him uh, prepare for that. And and lo and behold, he had a snowfall in his first week, and, um, and he has uh, 
one of our uh, holdovers, uh, Sanitation Commissioner John Darty, is uh, his Sanitation Commissioner. Uh, he was uh, uh, the longest-serving Sanitation Commissioner in the history of this city. Uh, the city has a you know the greatest snow fighting force. Uh, we like to say uh, of all cities in uh, the United States, and uh, you know I I, I um, I'm not going to venture any complaint. Switching to another place where there's at least a lot of snow, if not a lot of snowfall, Sochi, Russia. Uh, you and I have been sports fans for way back. Among the sports that we love are the Olympics. I want to hear a little bit of the NBC Olympics Sochi trailer and talk about how you're looking toward the next uh, 17 days. Next winter, in the world's largest country, with a civilization more than a thousand years rich in culture and tradition, Russia will welcome the world for the Olympic Winter Games in Sochi. Sochi, where a sparkling new winter playground will test the greatest athletes on snow and ice. The Sochi Games will showcase winter's biggest stars. Will he repeat? He Featuring the greatest skier in American history. Now to the finish line, Lindsey Vaughn. And the action sports icon. Sean White double gold. Thrilling new events promise to make Sochi the most exciting winter games ever. The 2014 Olympic Winter Games on the networks of NBC Universal. That is what the fans wanted to see. Howard Wilson, that's not even a joke. Uh, that's a trailer that mentions uh, Lindsey Vaughn now out of the Olympics. Sean White pulled out of his first event. Uh, an Olympics that is marked, hopefully, over the next couple of weeks by great athletic prowess, but over the last few weeks by all these setup pieces that talk about logistical challenges, construction snafus, and, of course, uh, a political backdrop that includes treatment of, uh, of homosexuals and and uh, and other minorities. Uh, how do you look at uh, an Olympic Games now, a father of, of two and and a, a guy who grew up watching the U.S. team at, in Lake Placid? Well, I have to admit, I'm more of a summer games guy than a winter games guy. Um, but my family are big ice skaters. My wife and my two kids are now ice skating. And so I suspect they're going to be interested in, in watching uh, the ice skating. At, at this point, uh, the enduring image of these games is the dual toilet, um, <laughs> which, you know, is a picture that's been everywhere and, and is obviously defining Russia for a lot of people in a fairly negative way. Uh, it is certainly conceivable that, that uh, an athlete comes to the fore and uh, has a marvelous performance and wins some record number of gold medals, and uh, and that person kind of replaces uh, the 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 um, the dual toilet image, if you will. Uh, but right now, the, the the games are not going well uh, from the perspective of the iconography and imagery. The business, the dual toilet, is amazing. As is the, <laughs> I think we put the radiator in the wrong place picture. Right. Um, and. Uh, from the business model of something like Bloomberg Associates and trying to make cities and big developments tick, have has, has there been any chatter among people that you've worked with or part of this idea that uh, if if only they reached out for more help that they could make some of these massive infrastructure uh, projects work better earlier on? Well, I'm I'm sure that's true, and and there are lots of places that that people can reach out uh, for assistance. Um, look, there are some games that are well run. Uh, everything seems to work. Things are pretty smooth and seamless. Uh, things worked very well in London, for instance. Um, other games have challenges, and um, you know some games have uh, 
have had uh, have been marred by terrible terrorist attacks. Um, some games have been uh, notable for the politics, uh, and others are uh, notable for the athletics. And right now, this is not one that's uh, thus far notable for the athletics. We're going to get into uh, American protest music in a minute, but I want to start with a little Russian protest music. And not that I really can understand these lyrics, but let's hear a little bit of Pussy Riot. <laughs> Howard Wolfson, that is Pussy Riot. Putin lights up the fires. Uh, Two of the singers in that band got out of jail and are in New York this week, a a gig at the Barclays Center. We're going to talk about political protest songs and music and and the way uh, bands can make such a statement. Uh, Pussy Riot's contribution to the dialogue? Well, I think Pussy Riot shows that there are still lots of places in this world where music is considered really dangerous uh, and that you can be thrown in jail uh, for making music that challenges the existing power structure. Um, We don't have that in this country, but you see in Russia where the powers that be um, consider the music threatening and dangerous, and they want to suppress it. Was this in the back of your mind, Pussy Riot, as you started to think about how you might pen this week's column for the Daily Beast? And maybe before we get to that, why are you writing a column for the Daily Beast? Well, I've been a longtime music fan. Um, I used to send out a, an annual top 10 list uh, to friends via email. Uh, and then I had a blog for a little while um, that I had to stop when I went to work uh, for Mayor Bloomberg. And um, when I got out of the administration, um, John Avalon at the Daily Beast reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to pen a weekly column or write a weekly column. And uh, I was really excited to do it. I've been really excited to do it. The first, uh, first piece I ran was um, about... Uh, sort of the, the way we discover music in the modern age. No longer the vinyl stores that we'd go in exactly and cruise through the decks, exactly. through the stacks. And then the second was um, after uh, Pete Seeger died, um, I thought a lot about um, my experience seeing Bruce Springsteen on the, on the Seeger Sessions tour and uh, wanted to talk a little bit about how Seeger influenced Springsteen and the nature of protest music. Let's hear a little bit of uh, coverage of Pete Seeger's death from ABC News just uh, last week. And the father of American folk music has died. This morning, Americans young and old are taking to social media to remember Pete Seeger. Pete Seeger wrote hundreds of songs performed by many of the greats in American folk music. Seeger's career as a mainstream performer with the Weavers was ended by the Red Scare. He was blacklisted and sent to jail for refusing to answer questions about his ties with the Communist Party. He would reemerge as a pioneer of protest music. His song became one of the anthems for civil rights, another that he wrote in 1962 to protest the Vietnam War. You begin your second column for The Daily Beast really setting a scene of Bruce Springsteen about to play a gig in a smaller venue than you might otherwise see him at a stadium or a major uh, uh, a major arena. You write it from the 
perspective of having been there. Were you at that gig? I was. I, got, I was lucky enough. I don't remember how, but I was lucky enough to get tickets for one of his uh, warm-up shows before he embarked on the Seeger sessions. And a friend and I, uh, Hugo Lindgren, who uh, was at the New York Times Magazine, and I drove out to uh, the Jersey Shore uh, to this uh, convention center there that looked like it was going to be torn down the next day. Very poor shape. Um, and uh, we were part of a crowd of a couple of thousand um, to see Springsteen open up uh, on the uh, the Seeger Sessions tour. And I, uh, in the piece, I recount sort of listening to the Springsteen diehards, and everyone there was pretty much a Springsteen diehard. A lot of people from the Jersey Shore, people sort of trading stories about the first time they had seen uh, Springsteen, uh, how far they went back with Springsteen. And everybody um, anticipating the concert, not really knowing uh, how it would sound, because Springsteen was mostly performing music that wasn't his. Um, Springsteen has always covered other artists, but uh, on the Seeger sessions, he was um, he was performing a, a majority of the songs were covers, and that was different and unique. I want to hear a little bit of the Seeger sessions in a second, but begin with with one of the great Springsteen anthems, Nebraska. Why only I kill every thing in my pain? I can't see it. I'm sorry for the things that we've done. At least for Howard Wolfson, the meaning of Nebraska and and how you came to appreciate Springsteen's contribution. Well, that was a, a live version of Nebraska. The the one on the album Nebraska that he uh, uh, put out in the early '80s is is even more sort of severe and austere uh, than that. And um, one of the points that I make in the piece is that um, a lot of Springsteen's explicitly political music is pretty severe it's austere um uh and uh in 2004 uh springsteen gets involved in electoral politics really for the first time um reagan attempts to appropriate him in 84 he resists this but he never really got involved in electoral politics in 2004 he goes all in for john Kerry. he performs concerts around the country with other artists with neil young and pearl jam and the Dixie Chicks and uh, and James Taylor, uh, and then tours a little bit with John Kerry at the end of the campaign. John Kerry is defeated. Springsteen is unsuccessful in removing Bush from office. And the result is um, an al- a very, very dark album, Devils and Dust. Um, again, severe, um, depressing, if you will. And uh, the next year, in 2006, the Seeger Sessions come out. And it's it's as buoyant and light as the D- Devils and Dust album is, is as dark and heavy. And my, my guess is that listening to Seeger um, helped Springsteen understand that political music could, in fact, be fun. It didn't have to be heavy or overly didactic. It could be joyous. You could dance to it. Uh, people could sing along to it. Um, and uh, the Springsteen session, the Seeger sessions, uh, the album, but especially the tour, were were joyous. They really were buoyant. Um, and uh, uh, Springsteen, I think, he didn't reinvent himself, but he certainly showed another side of himself to new fans and longtime fans. 
Have you got any reaction from this most recent column, either from Springsteen camp or Springsteen uh, uh, devotees that sort of reinforce your view that he was able to make this pivot to these very severe commentaries to ones that were more joyous in the way that Pete Seeger and the folk tradition was in the first place. Yeah, I um, I sent the piece out to um, folks who I know are Springsteen devotees, a lot of whom know more about Springsteen than I do, and I, I sent it out with, uh, with some apologies to that effect that I knew that I was treading in ground where there were a lot of experts. Um, I haven't gotten any criticism. Uh, nobody sort of said that uh, the piece was wrong, so I took that as a good sign. Um, but you can hear in that song, I mean, that you, you're, you're moving your head. It's fun. It, this is fun music. And live, it was even more so that the, the concert that I saw, uh, or some of the concerts, actually, that I saw on that tour, I saw a couple. Uh, he opens up with that song, and it's immediately grabbing. Um, but it's, a, it's got a political message. You, definitely has a political message. And when you go to a Springsteen concert, whether it's the Seeger Sessions tour or even one of his big stadium tours, you're not going to get out of the stadium without at some point getting a bit of the political speech from Bruce Springsteen. I want to hear one of those before he starts to sing This Land is Your Land. do a song for you that I guess uh, is about the greatest song ever written about America. And it's by Woody Guthrie. And what's so great about it is it gets, it gets right to the heart of the promise of what our country was supposed to be about. And I guess, I don't know if you talk to some of the unemployed steel workers from East LA or Pittsburgh or Gary. There are a lot of people out there whose jobs are disappearing. I don't know if they'd feel if this song is true anymore. Howard Wilson, when musicians begin to get political uh, with words more than music, do they, what, to what extent do they risk their credibility? I mean, Pussy Riot is in Brooklyn this week after spending two years in prison. Pete Seeger was genuinely blacklisted and investigated. Bruce Springsteen, for the better part of the last 30 years, has been a millionaire many, many, many times over. And he gives these speeches that do tug at the heartstrings of the unemployed steelworker, but he is in fact really not one of them uh, in the way he lives his life today. How can he keep his credibility making those kinds of comments uh, while he basically lives the life of a very well-paid uh, singer? Well, I, you know, I'm an unabashed Springsteen fan, so I'm not exactly objective. Um, I don't think he pretends to be uh, a steelworker. Um, I don't think he pretends to be unemployed or poor or down on his luck. Um, I think he is able to empathize with people like that and write songs from their experience and their perspective. The Rising album um, that he made after uh, 9-11, I think is probably, uh, I don't know what you think about this, but I I think it's probably the most effective art in America that deals with September 11th. I can't think of a, another book or a movie or a play or another set of songs or an album that so effectively captures um, the voices and the moods uh, from people who went through 
uh, that day here in New York and, and around the country and around the world. Um, and so, you know, this is a guy who's still got it. <laughs> right. It's still got it. I mean, watching the Super Bowl uh, last week, you saw the commercial uh, uh, that Bob Dylan was in. And it's amazing to sometimes watch people who uh, we know from one generation and then they appear in the next one and, and, and look at the disconnect between delivering a commercial message in that way versus the way he came up through folk music. Bruce Springsteen over 30, 40 years has uh, had very little physical change and very little political change and very little presentational change. Look, I, from a physical perspective, he's an inspiration to guys like you and me. He's, right. he's getting better looking as he gets older. Let's hear a little bit uh, of the ghost of Tom Joad from Bruce Springsteen. Men walking along the railroad tracks Gone some places, no going back Highway patrol choppers coming up over the ridge Hot soup on a campfire under the bridge Shelter line stretching around the corner Welcome to the new world order I love that song. It's a great song, and he recently re-released a different version, <clears throat> an electric version, with uh, Tom Murillo, who the lead singer and guitarist from Rage Against the Machine, plays uh, guitar on it. Um, he's been touring with Springsteen. And, you know, you can see Springsteen kind of punching the song up, um, making it uh, uh, literally electric. And um, um, I don't know if, if that's going to reach more people with the message or not, but it's, a, it's certainly a different sound. Um what is next for the column? Uh, you might have another one debuting this week. Is it a weekly commitment? It's a weekly commitment. Um, I'm beginning to reach out to uh, to artists that I admire or I'm interested in um, in the hopes of interviewing them. Um, gotten some some stuff on the schedule, so you'll be seeing some some interviews uh, and some profiles of uh, artists that I think people ought to be paying attention to. Um, but it is a it's a weekly commitment and and it's a it's a lot of fun. Another thing you and I uh, share great affinity for is uh, the game of baseball. Great year for my Red Sox last year. Not a not a great one for your Yankees. Pitchers and catchers reporting over the next two weeks, and this is a going to be a fascinating year. Represents uh, the 40th anniversary since Henry Aaron hit uh, his 715th home run, eclipsing Babe Ruth's record. I want to hear a little bit of that call and then uh, talk a little bit about the 2014 season to come. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 715. There's a new home run champion of all time. And it's Henry Aaron. Howard Wilson, Henry Aaron, 80 years old this year. Where were you uh, watching when he eclipsed the record? Any memory? I wasn't much of a baseball fan back then. I was I was probably a year or two away from getting really into it. And uh, what are your thoughts about where the league is headed in the season to come? Uh, you know, I mean, I think the Yankees have taken some steps to improve their team. I'm a Yankees fan. Um, I I could understand why they let Cano go. Uh, he was asking for a lot of money in a very long contract. I think there's ample evidence that these long contracts don't really benefit the teams past three or four years. Uh, and so by the sixth, seventh, eighth year, you've got a real problem. 
little clip in uh, in our one of our favorite daily reads, Mike Allen's playbook last week, that uh, your wife, Terry McCullough, is moving jobs from the Tory Burch Foundation to the Bill, Hillary, and Chelsea Clinton Foundation. Or is the Wolfson family ready for another go with, in the Clinton orbit? Well, my wife uh, has been passionately involved in uh, women's issues and women's policy for her whole career. She worked at NARAL uh, and worked for Nancy Pelosi, was her chief of staff uh, for many years. And uh, she's thrilled to be able to do uh, this work uh, for the foundation. It's uh, going to be looking at um, Beijing and the Beijing conference and what has happened since then, focusing on uh, areas that women uh, have made progress and areas where they have not around the world. And um, she's, she's in her element and really, really very happy. Excellent. Well, Howard Wilson, Deputy Mayor of New York City until uh, the transition in January 1st, the former spokesman for Hillary Clinton on our last presidential campaign. We'll see who might sign up this time. And now a uh, writer for the Daily Beast on music and also my very good friend. Thanks for joining me on Polyoptics. Yeah, a lot of fun. Thank you. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.